0: You are in a battle, a daily war with supernatural forces determined to destroy you. I wonder if you believe that. Thomas Brooks believed that. In the 1600s, he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. In the book, he lists 12 ways that Satan draws us into sin. Number one, he presents the bait and hides the hook. Number two, he paints something sinful as something virtuous. Number three, he downplays our sin and makes it seem less serious and significant. Number four, he tells us that even the best men and women sin. He hides from us their virtues, their sorrow, and their repentance. Number five, he focuses our minds on the mercy of God. God will forgive you, he says, so just do it anyway. Number six, He persuades the soul that repentance is easy. It's not such a big deal to sin, he says. You you can just repent afterwards. Number seven, he makes you feel strong enough to flirt with temptation, believing you somehow won't succumb. Number eight, he points us to the success of men and women who seem to be flourishing while living in a continual pattern of sin. If they flourish in that state, he says, why wouldn't you? Number nine, he makes the way of holiness seem hard and burdensome. Number 10, he causes us to compare ourselves with others we consider to be greater sinners. I'm not so bad after all, we say to ourselves. Number 11, he pollutes our minds and souls with false teaching and doctrines that enable us to justify our sinful behavior. And number 12, he encourages us to choose friends and associates, company that negatively shapes our thinking and character. I wonder if any of those devices sound familiar to you. Did you realize that 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 kind of thing was Satan at work? Did you realize that his his fiery arrows looked like those things? Did you realize that he is seeking to destroy you? Because for this section of Joshua to to, to have an impact, for this section of Joshua to make any sense at all, we first have have to accept that we're in this ferocious battle against evil forces. Ephesians 6 puts it like this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul doesn't pull any punches, does he? does he? He makes it crystal clear. You're in a battle. The question for us is how are we going to fight in that battle? Or are we going to fight? Are we going to play the victim? Are we going to lie down and die? Or are we up for it? Are we up for the fight? Because I'm convinced that this section of Joshua helps arm us for that battle and gives us hope that victory is secure. To understand Joshua 10, it's important that we know something about a people group called the Gibeonites. In chapter 9, we learn that they showed up at Israel's camp in Gilgal in worn-out sandals, wearing old clothes with a supply of moldy bread. And it all seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? Uh, It seems strange because it was part of a ruse, in fact. It was part of a a scheme, a cunning scheme they had to, to try and persuade the Israelites to make a treaty with them, a peace treaty. Uh, and they thought if, if they come to, to the Israelites looking poor and weak, looking like they'd come from a distant land far away, then the Israelites wouldn't feel threatened by them and so would be more likely to come to terms of peace. And in fact, they were right because that's exactly what the Israelites did. They saw them with their, their old kind of worn out shoes, their moldy bread and thought, oh, these guys, they're poor, they're weak. Uh, They're frail, uh, and as a result, they didn't even bother inquiring of the Lord, and they came to this peace treaty with them, and they ratified it uh, with an oath before God. Shortly after, however, they found out that the Gibeonites were in fact a rather powerful people from just down the road. turns out they were neighbors all along, and as you can imagine, they were absolutely furious, livid. But Joshua, to his credit, ensured that they remained true to their treaty, despite the deception uh, it was based on. And so Israel Israel showed mercy to this uh, group of undeserving outsiders. It's a picture uh, of God's grace to those outside the covenant community. Grace and mercy to undeserving outsiders. However, this peace treaty caused concern to other rulers in the region. And the reason for that was this treaty between Israel and Gibeon in effect sealed off the north of the country from those kings in the south. It shut down their commercial and political interests in the north. And threatened with that loss, five Amorite kings from the southern region formed an alliance intent on taking Gibeon out and and opening up the north of the country once again. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 10. We read that one of these southern kings, a guy called Adoni Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, was very much alarmed. He was really concerned about this situation. And in verse 5, we read that he and his newly formed alliance, which included these four other kings, launched an attack on Gibeon. Verse 6 tells us that the Gibeonites were under siege. They were under attack by five adversaries. And in their, dis- in their distress, they cry out to Joshua for aid. Look what it says in verse 6. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, they cry. They cried, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. And you just get the sense, don't you, of, of their distress, of their fear, of their helplessness, of their need for a savior. In their hour of need, they cry out to Joshua And it reminded me of the language used in the Psalms. David says uh, something like that quite often in the Psalms. He cries out for aid from the Lord. Look at Psalm 7. Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. We see that kind of language over and over again in the Psalms, don't we? The Psalmist cries out to God for salvation and rescue. And here we see the Gibeonites, those former enemies of Joshua and Israel, crying out to Joshua for salvation. Now, I think at this point, it's really important we remember that the name of Joshua itself means the Lord is salvation. And actually, Joshua's name is the Hebrew variation of the name we translate Jesus from the Greek. And I think that's significant because when we turn to the New Testament, we hear, we hear Jesus identify himself as the savior Uh, he, he calls himself the son of man who came to seek and to save the lost he steps into that role of savior and just as the gibeonites cry out to joshua for aid and rescue we with new testament eyes cry out to jesus the greater joshua for salvation and rescue and just like the gibeonites we too can feel surrounded by enemies surrounded by these forces of darkness determined to crush us and destroy us. We find ourselves in desperate need of rescue. Maybe the the devil is using one of those 12 strategies I listed at the beginning to lay siege on your mind. And maybe it, it feels overwhelming. Maybe he's throwing debris in your path to stumble you, to cause you to doubt the goodness of God. Because he'll do anything he possibly can to put distance between you and God could be a number of of things he's trying to do. Maybe you've you've lost your job during COVID and and the devil whispers to you, is God really for you? Is he really with you in this? Maybe you've received terrible news from, from the doctor. Is God really kind? The devil whispers. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Is God really greater than death? The devil whispers. Has Jesus really triumphed? Maybe you've been really hurt by another Christian. And you might be asking yourself, does God really change hearts? The devil puts these thoughts in our mind. He tries to stumble us. He tries to get us to doubt God's goodness. And those satanic forces will attack us through the words of others, through the media, through social media, through the ideologies we're taught at university and at school, and through your own reason and logic even, you will come under siege. It's, it's inevitable. And often that happens at the times you're seeking to serve the Lord the most. I remember when I was just 14, asking to be baptized. And that was a really big deal for me to ask to be baptized. I, I found it really hard. And around that time, I was hit with these terrible fears that I wasn't a Christian at all. It was almost as if the, the devil saw my desire to live for God, my desire to be obedient And actually said, I'm going to make him doubt God even loves him. And that will stop him serving God effectively. And you know what? It was a real hindrance. And that struggle has certainly got easier for me since I was a, a child. But it's still something I have to battle with at times. It's still something I have to wrestle with as the devil shoots those fiery darts at me. And in those times of need, in those times of distress, we need to recognize that only Joshua, only Jesus, the greater Joshua, can save us from the destructive power of the enemy. Jesus is the one who saves desperate people from the dark forces of evil. And so at times we're under attack, we need to turn towards him, not away from him. Joshua responds to the Gibeonites' cry for aid, and he heads towards the heat of battle. We read in in verse 8, the reassuring words of the Lord to Joshua as he goes. Do not be afraid of them, the Lord says. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. I, I love that. How comforting that must have been for Joshua as he went. You see, the outcome was already secured. It was guaranteed. The Lord fought for Israel and he had already given them the victory. And I wonder if you see the parallels between that situation and our life. We're not alone in the battle. Whenever we go through these times of difficulties, the Lord stands alongside us. The Lord fights alongside us. And as you know, because of what Christ achieved at the cross in his death and resurrection, the outcome has already been secured. And so the Israelites march through the night to attack this southern coalition. And in the morning, they take them by surprise. We read, the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. And as they fled, these southern kings, the Lord hurled hailstones down at them, killing many of them. And it's crystal clear, isn't it, that the Lord is right there in the heart of the battle, fighting alongside them, hurling hailstones from on high. And I think that's such a comfort, isn't it? That the Lord doesn't stand at the side and and observe as the devil fires his cruel arrows at you. He's right there with you. What does Paul say in Ephesians? He doesn't say grow in mental toughness, become more resilient, engage in some kind of self-flagellation, and then you'll triumph over the devil. No, this is what he says. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That's where the answer is. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. And I wonder if you, like me, sometimes ignore God in the fight. You almost trust in your own strength. You grit your teeth and you dig your nails and you say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have victory myself. I'm going to overcome. The thing is, you never win a battle like that. You need to be strong in the Lord who fights for you, who fights with you. You need to cover yourself in his armor. Back in our passage, it became apparent that the Israelites were going to need a miracle if they were going to completely defeat this southern coalition by nightfall. And so we read the extraordinary verses uh, 12 to 14. These verses for me are the, the the climax of this passage. Let's read them together. Verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, "Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the, nation, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. This is an extraordinary section, isn't it? Joshua, in effect, prays that time would stand still so that the Israelites might complete their victory over their enemies. It's an extraordinary prayer. He prays for something that's seemingly impossible. But when you pray to the one who created time and space and the laws of physics themselves, even this kind of prayer can be answered. But notice what stuns the writer of Joshua even more than the miracle itself. It's the fact that the Lord listened to a human being. This is the thing that blows the writer's mind. He says, there has never been a day like it before or since. Why on earth would the all-powerful God of the universe, the one who just a short while earlier had been hurling these hailstones down from on high, why on earth would he listen to the voice of a man? It doesn't seem to make sense. It was almost as if Joshua didn't just pray that the sun and the moon would stand still, although he did pray. He almost seemed to command that they stood still. It's really strange. And it was almost like for those few hours, the universe was given over to the hands of a man. It was as if God had delegated authority to him for a time. And the writer says there's never been a day like this. And certainly throughout the whole of the Old Testament, there's no parallel to this account. But I wonder if this cosmic event reminds you of another day. A day when the sun stopped shining at noon and darkness covered the land for three hours. A day when Satan and his forces of evil came up against the Lord and against his anointed. And those forces of evil found themselves facing a man, a man who held the fate of this universe in his hands, a man who was hanging, nailed to a wooden cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua. And I'm sure Satan must have thought on that day he'd won a great victory. As the Son of God hung on that cross, it looked as though the powers of darkness had triumphed. Yet what they failed to realize was something remarkable was taking place on that cross. Jesus was standing at the head of the human race. He was representing the human race. He was taking responsibility for all the sin of the world. And he stood in effect between us and Satan. He bore all Satan's accusations. All the demonically inspired vile sins of the human race. From jealousy to child abuse to murder to racism to genocide to blasphemy to envy. All of it. All of your wickedness. All of my wickedness. Everything that Satan accuses us of before the father. The great accuser he's known as in Revelation. Everything he accuses us of before God the Father, all of it was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And and though an innocent man, in effect, the Lord Jesus said, I take responsibility for all of that. And God the Father listened to that man, the son he loved, and poured out on him the full weight of his righteous anger, his divine wrath against the sin of the world. And he accepted Jesus as the sin-bearing substitute and punished him in my place and yours. And in taking our punishment, we read in Colossians 2, he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Isn't that amazing? And now every accusation Satan brings against us falls flat. Because written on our charge sheet are the words paid in full. And that's why Paul can write these amazing words in Romans 8. I'm sure they've been a blessing to you as they have been to me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to write later in chapter 8, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This man The greater Joshua, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has won the ultimate victory. The ultimate victory over the dark forces of evil. And it was a victory foretold as early as Genesis 3, when God says that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. And at the cross, Jesus Christ disarmed that great accuser. Back in Joshua 10, the sun and the moon stood still. And they stood still until those southern forces were routed. The five kings themselves were found cowering in a cave. And they were brought out one by one to face Joshua. And we read in verse 24 that Joshua summoned the men of Israel and said to the commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. What a picture of The absolute power that these Israelites had over their enemy. This enemy that probably at first appeared terrifying, appeared threatening. Now they literally were under their feet. And so too with Satan's forces of darkness. Having ensured their demise at the cross, Jesus in effect now says to us, Come, put your feet on their necks. See they're utterly defeated. This this powerful force you were once scared of is destroyed. As Paul writes in Romans 6, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. They've got no power over you. The things Satan throws at you that may seem terrifying and insurmountable, we need to try and look at them in light of Christ's great victory at the cross. Look back to the the past battles you had with sin and temptation. The things you struggled with. I think of that fear that I had as a teenager that I wasn't really a Christian at all. Mountains you never thought you'd get over. But the thing is, you're still here. You're still going. God has brought you through to this point. Some of those struggles, maybe they're ancient history now. Maybe they seem really small and insignificant. Some have left lasting scars. And they still hurt. And some are still very real. But one day... In the light of God's presence, they won't seem so terrifying at all. And in Joshua 10, the enemies are put to death and their bodies are exposed for all to see. It's a gruesome image, but a powerful illustration of what Christ has done to the forces of evil that are set on destroying us. We read in Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing. Over them by the cross. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And throughout the rest of Joshua chapter 10, we see the armies of Israel traveling around the strongholds of the southern region, tearing those strongholds down. The kings had been defeated. All they had to do was go to the strongholds and tear them down. Victory was certain, but there was still work for them to do. These Israelites who used to be slaves, now they're warriors, victorious warriors. They're not victims. They're victorious soldiers of the living God. And so for us, the cross sealed Satan's fate. His demise is guaranteed, it's confirmed. But God has allowed us to feel the heat of battle a little longer. He wants to shape us through our fight with Satan and his allies. He wants to sharpen our faith and mold our character. And so those 12 devices I listed at the beginning, along with others, will be used against us often on our Christian journey. But here's the thing, we're not victims. We're not helpless, weak victims. As our society increasingly opposes the things of God, we shouldn't develop this victimhood mentality. Because the truth is, we're on the winning side. The ultimate battle over dark forces has been won. So we don't need to fight like the world fights. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought. To make it obedient to Christ. See, our role now is to dis- destroy strongholds, just like the Israelites. We're still in a battle, but we fight with confidence. We fight with the Spirit of Christ indwelling us. We look back to that great triumph on the cross, that day of all days. We counter Satan's devices with the truth of the gospel. We daily arm ourselves with the promises of God, proclaiming God's truth to a dark world and in doing so, tearing down Satan's strongholds. And we pray continually. We'll get some scars along the way, no doubt. But one day the fight will be over. And we'll be welcomed home, welcomed into the presence of our King and into his perfect rest. I can't wait for that day. Let's look forward to it and fight hard as we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Lord, it's in some ways sobering to realize that we're in this intense battle against dark forces. But thank you, Lord, that we don't fight alone. Lord, you stand alongside us in this great battle. Lord, and ultimately you have won the great victory over these dark forces. Their demise is sure and certain. Lord, and one day the fighting will be over. One day we'll be welcomed home into your perfect rest. So Lord, keep us going. Keep us clinging to you. Keep us returning to your promises. Help us to fight with your armor on and not in our own strength. Lord, please, Preserve us and keep us. Lord, we await the day when we are welcomed home. We praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with a final hymn. Blessed be your name. And then our service will be finished.